Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. This morning we are going to be reading verses 1 through 10, but for today we are primarily going to focus on verse 9. Um, There are a number of things that uh, is needful to discuss when it comes to the resurrection of our Lord, because that's where we're at. He has given his life as a ransom for many, as he had said. He has endured the justice of his father on the cross. He has satisfied that justice. And as Jason had, had went over last week, he has been buried in a tomb. And here in chapter 20, we are having what has occurred on the, the day that Christ was resurrected. Now we'll again be reading the first 10 verses. We're going to focus in on verse 9 because as we work our way through these passages that deal with the resurrection and deal with the accounts, uh, we want to understand the necessity of the resurrection of Christ. That it, it is a core truth of the Christian faith. It is absolutely necessary for the Christian faith. It is not something we can gloss over. It is not something that is unimportant in comparison to his life or his death. The resurrection is central to to our faith. And we need to understand that. We need to understand the implications of it. Now, in the coming weeks, we will be going over this particular passage, verses 1 through 10, more exegetically. uh, Because there are some things that, of course, that this text brings out for us that we want to understand. We want to understand how the accounts of the empty tomb work together and give us a bigger picture of what had happened on that morning. Uh, Whereas John focuses mainly on Mary Magdalene and her coming to the tomb, the other gospel writers record the number of other women that were there. Where does this account with Mary Magdalene fall into? Because she goes to the tomb, as John records, sees that the tomb has been rolled away, Christ's body is there, and so she runs to the disciples. And as she gets to the disciples, the things that she says is, they've taken his body and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter and John are going to run to the tomb. They're going to uh, try to investigate, and it's not until thereafter that Mary has that encounter with Christ. Whereas in the other Gospels, the women see the angels there and announce to them that, Christ is risen. So where does all this fit in? And I I promise we will go over those in the coming weeks because we need to understand how the scriptures are complementing each other in these gospel accounts. But we I want to first begin more doctrinally uh, of the of the resurrection itself. And it was needful also that. we recite the Apostles' Creed together because there is a particular wording in the Apostles' Creed that, that, that it is necessary for us to also address that we understand it rightly when it comes to his death, burial, and the resurrection of our Lord. So we're going to go over a number of things today. Again, it's going to be more doctrinally today. And then in the coming weeks, we will go more exegetically through this passage. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We'll read verses 1 through 10. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. 
Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have lain him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we come into your presence. We ask that you would help us to understand as, as much as we are able to the implications of the resurrection of our Lord. Of, Father, of the necessity of believing the resurrection. Guide our thoughts today and we pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would, would open our minds and that he would teach us. For we need him at every moment, Lord, to teach us and to guide us through your word. We pray that Christ will be magnified this day and, and that, Father, ultimately your name will be glorified. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so we want to understand... What Christ has accomplished in the resurrection itself. We primarily look at his life. We look at his death. We see that in, in, in his life that he was actively fulfilling the law of God to its perfection. That he was declared righteous. We look to the cross and we see how it was on the cross that God the Father poured out his wrath upon Christ. Uh, the very thing that we can't see or that wasn't uh, visible to the eye of anyone that was standing around the throne but that the scriptures give us that understanding that he was our propitiation. He took upon himself the wrath of God and he satisfied the justice of his father. All of that is absolutely necessary for our salvation, of course. But so is the resurrection. The resurrection is central to the Christian faith. Anytime that we read of Christ going to Jerusalem, that it's necessary that he be handed over to the chief priests and scribes to be killed on the third day rise again. He has said in John chapter 2, for example, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. There's, there's that emphasis that is in the scripture of the resurrection of Christ. And, and there are great implications of that, that that come to us as God's people. You know, sadly... Uh, unfortunately, that there are some denominations that deny the resurrection. They only look to Christ as just being a great moral teacher, and they deny the resurrection. I remember in, in Bible college, one of our professors was, was telling us of uh, a man who was coming before the session in the Presbyterian church, and he was being examined. And it came to this question, and it was in one of the mainline Presbyterian churches. It came to this question, do you believe in the resurrection? And he said, no, I don't. 
And they said, well, let me ask you again. Do you believe in the resurrection? And the man said, no, I don't. And this is a man who is being ordained to the ministry to preach. And so they had a break. They pulled the man off to the side, and they said, you actually do believe in the resurrection. He's like, well, what do you mean? He's like, every time that you think of Christ or that you're, you're thinking of his teachings, you're resurrecting him in your mind. So you do believe in the resurrection. And so they brought the man back in. They asked him the same question. Do you believe in the resurrection? And he said, yes, I do. That's how they define the resurrection. But that is, that is nonsense. It is the bodily resurrection of Christ that is central to the gospel. The bodily resurrection of Christ. Not just resurrecting him up in our minds and somehow thinking that that, that counts as, as believing in the resurrection. That was being very deceiving on their part. But again, sadly, that's, that's how many churches are going this day. We want to... We want to understand its implication. We want to understand its centrality. There are things that really we need to go over to lead up to that in order that we can rightly understand what was taking place in the resurrection. And so I want to just call our attention to, of course, verse 9 is where we're really landing here because this is the emphasis of, of the resurrection. He says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must Rise again from the dead. Now, as we just confessed the Apostles' Creed, there was a line in the Apostles' Creed that we read together and that has uh, various uh, ways of, of confessing it. We read together that he descended to the grave. We actually had changed it. Initially, when we had started reciting the Apostles' Creed together, we kept it in its original form, he descended to hell. And then there were way too many questions on that as to what exactly does that mean. So let's, let's just change it and make it a little bit easier to understand. So he descended to the grave. But it does bear some, some implications there. Uh, and, and it does produce some questions. So beginning here, let's move the start here and let's work forward to the resurrection itself. But here's the question. Where was Jesus for the three days that he was in the tomb. Now there are varying opinions. Actually there's really no shortage of opinions. On that particular question as to where he was during those three days. And why it was necessary that he rise again bodily. So I just want to begin with this. What does it mean that he descended into hell. As the Apostles Creed uh, states. Now, I will say this, that this particular statement in the Apostles' Creed, that he descended to hell, really came about in around 390 A.D. It wasn't part of the original Apostles' Creed. The understanding at this particular point when it was introduced was that he descended to the grave. It's the idea of him going to the place of the dead, meaning his, his physical body being in the grave, he's dead. That's, that was the idea. It was really only in one particular uh, version of it. It came back into the, the Roman churches around the, the 7th century, and then it just became a part of it thereafter. The Reformers understood this particular statement in a variety of ways, but we'll get to that. We need to understand what it means in order to have a, a greater understanding of the resurrection as a whole concerning the work of Christ. 
So here's some various ideas of what it means that he descended to hell. Here are six. You have the original Catholic view that was articulated by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. <clears throat> he believed that there were five compartments of, of the afterlife. Uh, you have heaven, then you have the place of the damned, you have where the unbaptized babies go into limbo, you have purgatory, you have the limbo of the Old Testament saints, and limbo meaning the border, the edge of hell is the idea. And so one view is that he descended into hell is that Christ, when he died, he descended actually into Hades, meaning the place of the dead, and he brought up the Old Testament saints out of Hades. That's one. A second view that Christ descended to hell, Hades, and gave the unconverted a second chance. Now, that particular view was espoused by Clement of Alexandria and even Augustine. They believed that he delivered out of hell those who were living virtuous lives because they did not have the opportunity to believe upon Christ. Another view is that Christ ascended to hell and suffered in hell for our sins. This is also part of the Roman Catholic tradition that he not only suffered on the cross, but that he also went to hell or Hades. Oh, and I, I want to specify that because there is a difference between hell and Hades. Hades is the place of the dead. It's like the realm of the dead. This is where the unconverted go now. Hell being the final state is yet to come. But that is a view of some of the Roman Catholics uh, beginning in the 15th century. It is also a view that is held by a lot of the prosperity gospel teachers even today, like Joyce Meyer and, and, and Kenneth Copeland and some of those. They believe that he went to hell and that the demons that were in hell were tormenting him for three days uh, until he was resurrected. Um, something to think about just, just in, in that particular view. Um, there are no demons in hell. Uh, the only demons that are in hell are those that Peter refers to that left their first estate that he's kept in chains awaiting their judgment. Other than that, there are no demons in hell. Hell is not the kingdom of Satan and all this sort of thing because Satan himself is going to endure the judgment of God. Those that are in Hades at this particular time that are enduring torment are not enduring torment by any demonic presence they're enduring the very wrath of God, awaiting the final judgment at the end. That is referred to as the intermediate state for the unbelieving. But this was a view of the Roman Catholic tradition in the 15th century. You have another view, which interestingly, I was wondering where this particular view had come from most of my life and did not know that it was part of the Lutheran uh, view that Christ ascended to hell conquering Satan, uh, that, as they write, the entire person of Christ, God and human being, descended into hell after his burial, conquered the devil, destroyed the power of hell, and took from the devil all his power. Now, I grew up in independent, fundamental, pre-millennial, King James-only churches. There's a lot of other things you can throw in there, but we'll just keep it right there. And I had always heard that when Jesus died, that he went to hell and he took the keys of a power from Satan. And I always wondered, 
That is so neat to think of. I mean, wow, I wonder where that's at. And then you read through the scripture and you're like, really not finding that. Where, where is that? But that was a view held by the Lutheran church. That he conquered the devil, destroyed the power of hell, and took all the devil's power. These last two are the views of many of the Reformed churches. The first is that Christ suffered the spiritual anguish of hell on the cross. Not after he died. So in this, he did not descend into Hades in the literal sense, but that he suffered the torments of hell, the wrath of God, while he was on the cross. Now, this is a view that is widely held because if you think about it, when you're talking about Christ satisfying the justice of his father, you're talking about him taking upon himself the wrath of God. At what point did this happen, though? But when you're looking in the gospel accounts and you have the account when, when you had the eclipse, everything goes dark, and then Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it, it is at this point that God has imputed to Christ the sins of all who will believe in him. And he pours out his wrath upon him. So in that sense, Christ is suffering the anguish of hell while he's on the cross, not after he dies. So his descent into hell is in terms of a punishment rather than a place in that particular view. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism holds to that view. This one was done in the 16th century. Question 44, why is there added, he descended into hell? And the answer is that in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. That's where the Heidelberg Catechism stands in this particular tradition, this particular view. This is where Luther and Calvin landed when it comes to understanding that particular phrase of him descending into hell is descending into the anguish in the, in, of hell on the cross. That's one of the reform views. The other is that it's understood that uh, his dying and dwelling in the state of death is what it meant that he descended into hell. And this is going back to the understanding that the phrase he descended to hell or he descended to Hades is speaking of his burial. Not of any afflictions that come thereafter or anything like that. It's that he descended to the grave, just as we, we confess. And there were a number of Puritans, uh, William Perkins, William Ames, who held to this view. The, the Westminster uh, Confession itself It says, oops, I had it. I had to find it for you. Anyway, the Westminster is the one that, that really brings that particular view about that it is speaking of the grave and not of, of any afflictions thereafter, nothing like that. Um, but as Joe Beakey points out, it's really a combination of the two you could look at. In that, Christ had suffered on the cross the agonies of hell and that 
he descended to the grave in the sense that he truly died and was actually buried. Now, what then does that, what does that imply then when it comes to where he was at during the three days? Did he go to what was referred to as paradise or as, as some understand it as Abraham's bosom? Did he go there where the Old Testament saints were? Yes, he did. But the problem then is, where was that at? So you have two major views. That Abraham's bosom, which really, it really it should be called paradise. I mean, when he's talking in Luke chapter 16 of Lazarus being carried to Abraham's bosom, he's literally talking about Abraham's side. That as Lazarus was a poor man and he... he couldn't even have anything from the rich man's table. He lived that kind of life that he was taken to the place of honor next to Abraham. That's the idea. But it's paradise. That's, that's the wording. It's paradise. Now, some would say that paradise was also in Hades in the realm of the dead in the sense that there was a great gulf between paradise and, and Hades in the sense of where the unbelieving went for torment. And others, and, and those Old Testament saints would be there and until the ascension or the resurrection of Christ, uh, they would remain there until he is resurrected and then he brought them into the presence of God. Uh, because the idea is that they weren't fully justified yet because Christ hadn't come and made atonement. So they remained there until he died. He goes there. He announces his triumph. And then he brings them into the presence of the Father at his resurrection and ascension. The other view is this, which is really more in the Reformed theology view, is that the great gulf that was fixed between paradise and Hades was not so much horizontally separated as much as it was a vertical separation. And the idea being that when you're talking about a great gulf that is fixed that one can't pass to the other, is that basically emphasizing that their destinies are sealed. You can't go from one to the other. Paradise is the very name that Jesus tells the, the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. But the Apostle Paul uses it. Again, in 2 Corinthians 12, when he talks about being caught up to the third heaven, and he says uses the same word called up to paradise and heard all kinds of inexpressible words and all of that. So what theologians would come back to is this, is that the Old Testament saints were absolutely permitted to come into the presence of God because even though Christ hadn't come yet, everything that Christ was going to do as far as bringing about their justification by his atonement was communicated to them during their life so that when they died, they were able to go into the immediate presence of God. And they anticipated going into the immediate presence of God. And there were some verses that really bring that out, that their justification was even in their, in their lifetime. One, as, as you'll know very quickly, was Abraham, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the very passage that Paul uses in Romans chapter 4 to, to emphasize that Abraham was justified by faith. The psalmist in Psalm 32, 
Here's what David confesses. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is what Paul uses as well in order to emphasize justification by faith. He quotes from this passage, but yet this was true of David whenever David penned this. In Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, Asaph anticipates going into the presence of God. I'll begin in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, receive me to glory. This is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph anticipated that in the time in which he would die, he would go into the immediate presence of God. So for the reformers and those that are pinning many of these um, confessions of faith and catechisms, that was their view. From the scripture itself that the Old Testament saints had what Christ would eventually do, applied to them, communicated to them so that they were, just as we are, justified by faith alone in Christ alone. So they were permitted to go into the presence of the Father. So therefore, when we're talking about where paradise was located, paradise is wherever God's at. That's really what it comes down to. Wherever the Father is at, wherever his immediate presence is understood by the saints, that's paradise. That's where it's at. Whether we look at that as being in the heart of the earth, I I think that it's probably not. It probably wasn't. But that's just an opinion of mine. Again, there are men who, who hold to the views from both sides there. So understanding... Or paradise, what paradise is, who is there, the Old Testament saints, being in the immediate presence of God. Where was Jesus during the three days? We have some clues. And and again, a lot of this is on, we're a little bit on shaky ground here because we're having to make assumptions based on certain passages of scripture. But there are two in particular that give us very clear statements as to where our Lord was. He says to the thief... Today you will be with me in paradise. Not three days from now, whenever I ascend or when I'm resurrected, and then 40 days thereafter when I ascend to the Father. You will be with me today in paradise. And then when our Lord, as he had announced, it is finished, he says to the Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So where was Christ? He was with the Father. He ascended to the Father, having completed his work. Now that does bring up questions, though, because Jesus is going to say to Mary Magdalene, Stop clinging to me because I've not yet ascended to my Father. But when he's speaking there, he is indeed speaking of his bodily resurrection. Because here's something we need to try to wrap our minds around, which is very, very difficult to do, is that when it comes to Christ himself and, and, and how Christ was truly man. He was very God. He was very man. This means that Christ himself was a duality is what R.C. Sproul would say. He was body and soul. He had every property of what it is to be human, man, which is body and soul. And his body and his soul united to his divine nature. They were never intertwined, confused, any of that. But they made up the one man, Jesus Christ. So that he had a human soul. 
body and soul. This is what the confessions had, had said. This is the London Baptist Confession, for example. Chapter 8, paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy, Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures, so that two whole, perfect and distinct natures were inseparably, inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. It goes on. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law, and did perfectly fulfill it, and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul, and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died, and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. The confessions are pointing out a number of things there, but it's emphasizing that he had a soul. As, as the Westminster does, as the Belgic Confession does, and actually the Belgic Confession would say, <clears throat> Article 18 we confess, therefore, that Christ did, full, did fulfill the promise which he made to the fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets when he sent into the world at the time appointed by him his only begotten and eternal Son, who took upon him the form of a servant and became like unto a man, really assuming the true human nature with all its infirmities, sins, sin accepted, being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Ghost without the means of man, and did not only assume human nature as to the body, but also a true human soul, that he might be a real man. For since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that he should take both upon him to save both. Therefore we confess, <clears throat> we confess that Christ has become a partaker of the flesh and blood of the children, that he is a fruit of the loins of David after the flesh, made of the seed of David according to the flesh, Fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary, made of a woman, branch of David, a shoot of the root of Jesse, and it goes on. So when Christ had assumed human nature, he, not, he wasn't a body with a divine mind. He wasn't just an empty shell with a divine mind. He assumed the humanity as, as it truly is, body and soul. Both body and his soul, his human spirit, united to his divine nature, so that in his divine nature he was still omniscient, he was still omnipresent. He was still everything that he is in the essence of what it is to be God, absolutely. But when he added humanity to his being, he also added body and soul. 
so that in the time in which his body died, he actually endured what it is to die as a human. In the sense in which we die today, when we die, our body goes to the dust of the earth. There's a separation, an unnatural separation that occurs as a result of sin and as a result of sin being in the world and death, which is your body is separated from your spirit. But looking at it in this way, Christ enduring the judicial punishment for sin, it was necessary that he die a real death. But when he says to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he is speaking from his human spirit, united to his divine nature, ascending into heaven and being in triumph over what he has accomplished. Where was he for the three days he was in the presence of his father? He was in the presence of the most holy God. And his body remained in, under the power of death in that sense. That's what the confessions tell us as well, that his body remained under, under the power of death. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 50 says, Wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words. He descended to hell. So his body remained under the power of death in the sense that he remained dead as a, as a human would until the third day. And then the third day comes. And what occurs then is the reuniting of the spirit and the body of Christ, that he rises again with the same body in which he had died, except with all of its perfections. With all of its glory, he rose bodily from the grave. And when he ascends into heaven, he ascends into heaven at the end of that 40-day period with his disciples. He ascends into heaven, not human spirit united to his divine nature, but now body and soul of his humanity united to his divine nature. Now, why is all that important? It's, it's difficult, of course, to wrap our minds around to, to understand, well, why is it that it was necessary that he have a human spirit and body and united to his divine nature? And why is it that he experienced exactly what it is to die in the sense that a human being dies of the separation of body and soul? As the, as the confession had told us, because both were lost. The body and the soul and everything is being reconciled in him, redeemed in him. And so to be one who can be a mediator in the sense of uniting two opposing parties, he had to be a perfect representative of humanity as well as a perfect representative of God, which he is because he is the God man. He is very God and very man and be able to through himself, through his sacrifice and all that to bring the two together. At the end of that three-day period, he is reunited with his body into a physical body because that's the culmination of our redemption in that. But here's what one theologian says of the bodily resurrection of Christ. He says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fountainhead of all spiritual blessing. It was necessary that he rise again bodily so that all the blessings and the merits of, of his sacrifice will be extended to all his people. 
One writer says this, Christ's conquest of death confirmed his complete victory over sin and guilt for the wages of sin is death and the sting of death is sin. His, his death and his resurrection, rather, his resurrection, his bodily resurrection was a demonstration of his conquering death. It was also his vindication. It was his vindication by the Father that the Father had accepted his sacrifice. And it is so central to the gospel itself that when you read Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ isn't raised, you're still in your sins. Why? Didn't the death of Christ satisfy the justice of God? Well, didn't his life please the Father in, in that his righteousness would be credited to us through faith? Yes, but it's this resurrection itself that vindicated all his work. It was the Father saying, I accept I accept your sacrifice. And so that's why the scriptures, that's why the Apostle Paul would tie in the resurrection to our justification. He says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. That's what we just sang about in, in glorious day. He was raised because of our justification. Caspar Alevianus says this, For since he died, not in his own sins, but in ours, which had been laid on him, and since he rose again out of them to a life that will never die, a wonderful light shines on the minds of all believers. Not even one of all their sins remains unatoned for. For even if one of all their sins had remained, then Christ could not have arisen as our, sure, as our surety, and guarantor of the co of the covenant, our surety was confirmed. Excuse me, our surety was condemned before the world, but now he is justified and vindicated as righteous. And the vindication of the risen Lord Jesus is our justification, as it is a demonstration again of the Father accepting the Son, so that everything the Son did, which we look back on, that the Son satisfied the justice of God. How do we know that? Because the Father raised him from the dead. How do we know that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us through faith? How do we know that the Father was pleased? Because the Father raised him from the dead. All of that is necessary for us to understand that our justification is true. And that it is secured. Because the Father raised Christ from the dead. That's why our justification is, is or the resurrection is so vital to our understanding of justification. So many writers had, had written on this. Charles Hodge, for example, he said, He was delivered over in order that our sins might be expiated, and he was raised in order that we might be justified. When we're looking at justification, it's not just about his life and his death. We put a lot of focus there, and rightly we should, because it's his life that's imputed to you. In the sense of his righteousness, in the sense of his perfection is imputed to you, credited to you as if you had kept the law of God. His, his death is so vital as well because it's there that he paid for our sins, that he, that he endured the agonies of hell, everything that we deserved, and he satisfies God's justice, absolutely. But it's in the resurrection that we understand that all these things that he did was actually 
in view of our justification, of our redemption, because the Father accepted it. His resurrection was no less necessary than his, than his life or his, or his death. And it was in the resurrection that the Father vindicated him to be exactly who he claimed to be, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now here's some other things that, that we can try to understand uh, as far as the importance of the resurrection itself. Is that not only does the, res- the resurrection ensure our justification before God, as many other writers have written, it ensures our regeneration, our being born again. The Apostle Peter he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, sometimes we just gloss over that. We don't stop to think that, that these things are intimately tied to the blessings that come to us. The resurrection also being included in the life and death. We were born anew through the resurrection of Christ. How is that? Again, if we're looking at the resurrection being the fountainhead of all the blessings of God that is given to his people, then all the blessings of God that come to his people is not only things like the effectual calling of God, but the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Because Christ was raised from the dead, because he was vindicated, because he was proved to be who he claimed to be, that now as he is resurrected and the Spirit of God is sent to us to apply the merits of his sacrifice to us, one of the first that come to us is the regenerating work, bringing us alive, making us alive. As the scripture ties us into that, we're buried with him in baptism, we're raised up in the newness of life, all of that. Intimately connected together. That the resurrection is so vital to your salvation that the apostles continually connected in together with not only your justification, but with your regeneration, the Spirit causing us to be born again. The blessing of receiving regeneration was because Christ himself was raised from the dead. It is also closely tied into um, our sanctification. Because Christ was raised from the dead. He has secured not only the, the initial act of regeneration, which is producing new life in us, which is, the, you know, you, you think about the blessings of God, you have the effectual calling, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, being granted faith to believe in Christ, then you have justification thereafter. Then you have sanctification. That the new life in which you now live is because Christ himself was raised from the dead and he has quickened us by the spirit of God. Not only to call upon him in faith for, gener- for justification, but also to produce in us righteousness that is from Christ. That in our life we put into practice what the calling of God has made us. Your sanctification is contingent upon Christ being resurrected from the dead. Your glorification. Because Christ was raised body and soul... The scriptures affirm to us, as John says, we don't know what we're going to be like, but we know we're going to be like him. At the final glorification, the consummation of, of all the blessings of salvation is there. That's it. 
your glorification. So because Christ is raised from the dead, because we have the newness of life in the Spirit of God granted to us, that means that we walk in the newness of life that was secured for us in Christ, being made holy. Sometimes we don't feel holy. We often don't feel holy. But yet, we have to understand that, that our failures are not that our failures do not have any bearing on our justification, but that they are, that, that God is working in us to, to help us to, to overcome those things. That's part of our sanctification. And that was secured for us because Christ was risen from the dead. There are so many different things that we need to understand when it comes to that, of how important that the resurrection of our Lord Jesus is, that we should praise God continually for it. It shouldn't be something that we just focus in on at Easter. Uh, What are we celebrating? We're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Well, why didn't we do that last month? As we should. Because all of that is central to the gospel. It's central to the salvation that we've received in him. And these blessings are yours in Christ. Your your justification, your regeneration, your sanctification, your adoption, all of the things that come to us in, in, in Christ has been extended to you because of his completed work of his life and his death and his resurrection. That's why when we're looking back at John, that John is emphasizing that he must be raised again. He must. Because it is central to our salvation. Charles Hodge writes, With a dead Savior, a Savior over over which um, death had triumphed and held captive, our justification had been forever impossible. With a dead Savior, justification is impossible. With a risen Savior, our justification is secured. Your justification is secured. Now, here's something to think about. When we're talking about your justification being secured, we need to understand this. Because we talk about what Christ has has secured for us and and all of that, our justification, our sanctification, all of that. Your justification was freely granted to you. It wasn't conditional when it was granted to you. God did not say that Christ has died for you and you can be justified if you keep doing well. The gospel is that you have freely received these blessings of salvation from Christ without any condition on your part. So that means that as Christ has truly died for you, Christ has truly taken your place, and that in him you are truly justified. And how you do in life does not determine your justification. It doesn't diminish your justification. It doesn't increase your justification. You are justified permanently before God because of Christ. It's not looking at you. It's looking at him. And he secured that by rising from the dead. The gospel is everything that we receive. If there's any condition in which we have to do something, that's part of our sanctification in which we we sometimes do the things we want to do, sometimes we don't. That's, that's the Christian life. But it is not, 
having any bearing on your justification before God because Christ secured that. And the new life in which the Spirit of God is working in you to produce will come to you as we pray and we ask God to continually change us and to shape us and to mold us. And how can we be so sure that He will? Because Christ died and Christ was resurrected and Christ has secured this particular blessing to you as well. Your sanctification. There's so so many other things, but we should be praising God for the resurrection of our Lord and to understand why it is absolutely necessary to the gospel message that Christ rose bodily from the dead. So let's not just celebrate it at Easter, but let us celebrate it every, every time that we come together. When we talk about the completed work of Christ, we're not talking about his death and his life only, but his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his work as our mediator, all of it together that we have freely received by the Spirit of God. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word and for what we learn from your word. Thank you indeed for Christ and the work that he accomplished for us. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you that he not only laid down his life, but he he had the power to take it up again. And in doing so, was vindicated. In his resurrection, all his work is secured. Father, thank you for all the blessings that we have received in him. Father, may we take what we learn and may the Spirit of God produce in us a greater desire for you, a greater adoration, a greater love. We can't do these things on our own. We recognize our need for the Spirit of God to produce these in us. And so we pray, Father, that indeed he would, continually helping us to be all that you desire in us. Forgive us where we have failed you. But, oh, Father, we praise you that because of him, your mercies are new every morning. And great is your faithfulness. And that in him we have an advocate with you. Jesus Christ the righteous. Father, glorify yourself in us and may your word continually penetrate our hearts to produce in us a greater love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.